0: Welcome everyone to the Ask a CEO Show. Ask a CEO Interviews bring us inside the corner office and C-suite for discussions with top executives about their journey to leadership and the reality of running their companies today. Our host, Greg DiMetrio, is the CEO of Lorraine Gregory Communications, an award-winning integrated marketing company. He is also the founder of gregscorneroffice.com, the home of the Ask a CEO Interviews.
1: It's a special show that brings us the journey of CEOs into the C-suite and what it's like running their companies every day. Today, we're bringing a very successful serial entrepreneur, Steve Schnell. Steve started and run companies in the banking, fitness, and real estate industries. He must be very tired. <laughs> he started the Quantic Bank, which is a digital online banking institution providing customer-centric products and services nationally. He founded New York Mortgage Trust, the public traded REIT, Fitness Athletic Holdings, a California based luxury health and fitness chain, Realmore Capital, a real estate investment and development firm, as well as an early stage startup, or Restaurant.com. Steve also believes in giving back, It's generously founded and directs Urban Angels, which is a nonprofit serving 100,000 meals to the homeless every year. a board member of the author project which is involved in changing the landscape of youth mentoring he's an active member of the big apple gold chapter of the young president's organization well welcome to the show steve i don't know where to start with your biography it's so deep perhaps we should start with you (laughs) and what what was your background that led you to where you are today
2: good question Uh, so um, I grew up in Florida, primarily Clearwater, Florida. My, my parents split when I was young. So my mom and my brother and I uh, li- lived in Clearwater. And you know, she was a single working mom struggling to take care of her teenage sons. And um, so, you know, at, at an early age, I, I learned that if you want anything, you know, you're going to have to go out and get it for yourself. So, uh, you know, I started working probably from the age of 14, always figuring out different hustles, you know, whether it's... Um, <coughs> You know, washing cars, or uh, started my first small business was installing peepholes door to door in apartment complexes where they didn't have peepholes, and I thought, hey, what, what, what a, what a great idea! And you know, I would buy them wholesale and take a drill and stick them in people's doors and charge them twenty dollars, and actually paid for my first year of college with peephole money. Uh, but I always had an entrepreneurial uh, bent to my personality, and. So um, shortly after college, I went to University of Florida, Short, literally the day after I finished school, I, I pulled a U-Haul up to New York City, where I got a job uh, working for Price Waterhouse as a uh, staff accountant or auditor trainee. And a uh, few months in, I realized that wasn't really for me. And uh, by sheer coincidence, I met a couple of guys who were um, young, you know, young, entrepreneurial guys in their early 20s that were... Um, flipping uh, condos and co-ops in the real estate market in Manhattan. And uh, they recruited me to, uh, to join them in starting up a mortgage company out of their real estate office. And it's a long story. Uh, they didn't end up being the most savory of characters. I did quit my job and, and start working with them. We built a mortgage business. And um, ultimately, when their real estate company collapsed, uh, they decided that they didn't need me running a mortgage company anymore. And they effectively threw me out and stole everything. And uh, at the ripe old age of 23 or 24 years wow. old, I was facing bankruptcy and, uh, you know, had oh to re- figure out how to start over. And, um, you know, so uh, I-, I cobbled together a couple of bucks, you know, I borrowed some money from a friend, you know, enough to, to buy a typewriter and incorporate myself, get a license. And um, you know, working out of my tiny little apartment in Manhattan, Uh, I started a company and um, it was called New York Mortgage or New York Mortgage Corp. And it was a mortgage brokerage. And I was just, I was slinging mortgages, you know, calling up real estate brokers and saying, Hey, do you have any customers that need financing and uh, trying to get some referrals and uh, I was originating loans and I started to, uh, to do pretty well at it. And so I hired an assistant and then I opened a tiny little office. It was like a hundred square feet. And, um, over the course of ten years, I grew that from a one-man shop to uh, we were a national mortgage banking operation with about a thousand employees. We had um, sixty-five offices in twenty-five states. Ultimately, I formed a mortgage REIT, took the whole thing public, became a New York Stock Exchange-listed company in uh, two thousand four, and um, uh, you know things were great. I, I was living the uh, the American dream, so to speak.
1: Yeah, exactly. I am starting to get dizzy with all of these machinations that you have going on. But amazing, you, you became an overnight success after 10 years of Overnight
2: work. success, exactly.
1: After 10 years of really hard work. You know, as I mentioned in, in the intro I, I did for you, you founded this bank called Quantic, isn't it? Right. Quantic Bank. Yeah. It's, it's different. It's kind of different than most banking institutions. Maybe you could tell us something about that. What makes it so different?
2: So it's a good question. Um, when, uh, when I sold the mortgage business in 2007, you know, just ahead of the credit crisis, um, I would pretty much decided that I was done with you know, real estate finance forever. I had spent a number of years. It's the only thing I'd ever really done professionally. I mean, I started a side business at dot com and did some other little things um, with some friends and partners, but uh, I wanted to do some new things. And so I had I went up and went out with another friend and we, um, we started up a, a luxury health club chain out in California, which we're still running. And I did a fair amount of real estate development, but my phone kept ringing. And some, some of my former employers saying, hey, you know, the mortgage market has changed dramatically due, through, due to the credit crisis and, and due to this Dodd-Frank legislation, which made it harder for people to get home loans. And uh, so I saw an opportunity to um, you know, to really be able to re-engage in facilitating home ownership for people, but, but to do it in the form of a bank so that we could build a balance sheet of home loans and also have uh, consumer deposits as a source of funding these loans rather than using Wall Street for warehouse credit lines. And so I went out shopping for a bank and I found a tiny little bank that was failing. It was about to blow up uh, in uh, Great Neck, Long Island. And I, um, I acquired the bank, rebranded it, and, uh, and brought over a team of people. I said, look, if we're gonna do finance again, let's do, try to do good while doing well. And we really focused on, um, on lending to immigrants and underbanked people, a lot of um, small business owners, gig economy workers, you know, self-employed people that really fell outside the box and were having a difficult time obtaining financing uh, given the new Dodd-Frank legislation changes. And so the idea was to build a different kind of bank that was really focused on on the underbanked. And um, along the way, we were able to get certified by the US Treasury as a CDFI, which is a community development financial institution. And fewer than 2% of banks in the country hold that designation. And the reason we're a CDFI is because the vast majority of the financing that we do or the loans that we make are to low-income households nationally. That is
1: just outstanding to have that mindset and, and work in that community. I'm on the advisory board of a health center uh, that provides services to the underserved. And the, I don't want to say this, the ability to do that is just so rewarding when you can give them the same type of service as everybody else in the street and still care about them. They just, they actually fall in love with you and they become yours forever. So, you know, that's wonderful. I really commend you with that with that mindset. A lot of your resume has to do with that giving back. We'll get to that in a little bit. But right now, tell the audience about some of the other companies that you started uh, and whether they're still alive or what the situation is, because you've got such a broad reach in the business community.
2: Yeah, so I've, I've had some fun along the way. And um, in 2000, while I was running my former business, um a a childhood friend's dad called me and, uh, he was living in Aurora Colorado and he was running a couple of bagel stores and, um, he had developed a relationship with, with Cisco, not the router company, but the food distribution company. And, um, he had this idea to build a web portal where restaurants can promote, where he can promote restaurants on this web uh, on this restaurant search engine, so to speak. And, um, this is 2000, the internet's kind of brand new. And he called me and he said, hey, um, I have this great idea. And I said, yeah, that is an interesting idea but the key is distribution. How are you gonna market this to the you know, millions of restaurants in the country? And he said, well, I have a partnership with Cisco and they're gonna distribute it for us. And Cisco has 6,000 salespeople and hundreds of thousands of restaurants. So uh, anyway, long story short, he flew me out to Houston where Cisco was headquartered and I attended a meeting there and, uh, and they were all in, they loved the idea. They were gonna be the first big restaurant supply company to help bring their customers onto the internet. And we were gonna build these uh, micro websites for restaurants. And we, uh, we rebranded the company restaurant.com. We, bought, we actually bought that URL, paid several million dollars for it, but uh, we raised some money. And uh, we founded restaurant.com and we we went to work and uh, first version didn't work well. We had to reinvent ourselves a couple of times, but uh, we ultimately ended up becoming one of the biggest uh, restaurant uh, um, commerce transactors on eBay. We were selling hundreds of thousands of restaurant gift certificates a month on eBay and uh, generating a ton of revenue. And that business actually succeeded. We. We were, um, I'd say, at our peak. We were at 100, um, 100 million in revenue, 15 million in net income, which for a dot com in the growth stage was um, was pretty remarkable. Uh, and uh, I'm no longer involved in the company. In fact, it, it's suffered so you know a significant downturn since I left. But and it was recently sold. But it was a great experience to ride that whole dot com boom. I didn't get rich from it, but uh, I had a great time and, and was able to participate in that whole in that whole wave. Uh, so that was fun. But then one of my partners in Restaurant.com, a close friend of mine, I actually met on a sailboat in the Turkish Mediterranean, which is a whole other story. Um, He, uh, as a side project, you know, these entrepreneurial things, as a side project, he decided to open up a health club in Houston where he was living. And, uh, you know, he couldn't find a cool gym that he liked. And so he built his own brand called Fit and um, raised some money to open up a health club and it soon became one of the uh, most successful health club organizations in Houston. And, and at that point I had sold my, my prior business and I was watching him grow uh, fit and you know, he had um, you know, high aspirations to build you know, a, a, a bigger business out of it and open several locations. So I decided you know, that uh, the health club business would be more interesting than what I had been doing historically or just different. And so I joined him in that business. We bought out his. I bought out his partner, and uh, then we moved it to Southern California, where we've um, we've now opened our sixth location. And uh, you know, at the moment, we're shut down due to COVID. But um, ultimately, a very successful luxury, high-end uh, health health club brand, which we're really excited about uh, continuing to grow. Talk
1: about talk about the COVID impact on your gyms. COVID. They
2: completely closed. COVID's been murder. Uh, you know, the governor of California, um, controversial guy, a lot of double standards, you know, there's videos of him with his family having dinner at a winery while everybody else is shut down. Um, but yeah, the, um, a lot of industries have been just completely wiped out. And, uh, for the time being we're one and, uh, but you know, we got some PPP relief from the government and, uh, you know, hopefully we'll be able to open back up in the, in the next several weeks, and uh, and start back up. But Hopefully, the vaccine will get us. Exactly.
1: We're up here in New York, and quite frankly, you go down the street, and there's so many stores that are closed, and they're going to be closed forever. You know, poor people that just couldn't hang on, didn't have the wherewithal, didn't have a, a reserve in any type. It's um, tragic. Traffic is just amazing, amazing. When I watch the TV and see Sixth Avenue with no cars on it, now you're a New York guy, you know. It. At five o'clock, that's wall to wall. And you take a look at it and it's five cars on it. You know, it's really yeah. sad. Yeah. Our, our
2: headquarters, um, Quantic Bank's headquarters are at one Rockefeller Plaza, right in Midtown. And um, there's nobody there. It's, it's a ghost town. It's really sad. You know, the um, there are some states where businesses have remained open <clears throat> and families can earn a living and, and survive. And then there are other states where the uh, politicians have decided to close us down, and you know I don't. There doesn't seem to be any noteworthy difference in deaths in the states where they're open versus where they're closed. It's very political, and, uh, and New York is suffering dearly. And uh, you know I'm looking forward to.
1: COVID is a serious virus. I mean, I just came back from 23 days in the hospital with it, and I've been very fortunate to be able to recover as quickly as I have. But it's here. I got to tell you, when you're sitting in that bed for 23 days, your brain is going like, "All right, what am I gonna? What's gonna happen? Am I gonna make
2: it out of here? Am I not?" I hear you. Yeah, my I'm whole my happen. whole family got COVID. I'm actually on the tail end of it today. I think, I think this is my eighth or ninth wow. day. And uh, but yeah, it's 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 no it's no laughing matter. Um, you know, without getting political here, there has to be a balance though between enabling people to survive. And keeping people healthy and safe. Yeah, I, I, don't,
1: I don't think that we've seen the, the uh, level of uh, damage that it really has done yet. I think that's yet to come. Uh, as we open back up, what's left open back up? But anyhow, I, I'm glad you're. I'm glad you're well. Yeah, your you family's well. Yeah, yeah. So I was going to jump in one more question before we go to commercial. When you're looking at a company to invest in, what's in the back of your head about telling you this is a good deal, this is not a good deal? How do you go through that process?
2: Well, I think for me, the key is, um, especially in banking, where there's you know six thousand banks in the country, or in health clubs for for that matter, where there are tens of thousands, you have to be able to come to the market with some differentiator, some real value add proposition. Um, I mean. You, you can survive just by working harder than the next guy or being smarter than the next guy. But ultimately um, there has to be some, some market differentiated that you have a value proposition you could bring to uh, you know, a wide base of customers. But beyond that, I, I think the way really businesses win is with their people and their culture. And uh, you know, it's almost cliche to say that, but if you bring the right culture, even to a generic you know, banking or, or even health and fitness, uh, if, if you know, they say culture eats strategy for breakfast, right? You can have the best strategy or the best product in the world, but if you don't have a, a really solid culture upon which to build out the deployment of your products and services to the customer, then you're not going to succeed. And so, um, you know, we spend a tremendous amount of energy on corporate culture and making sure that we have the right people in the right seats that we we recruit properly we onboard properly we indoctrinate people to our culture and what we're all about we make sure that people are trained um trained to their job with ongoing training we make sure that people have um, a very clear understanding of what success for them looks like at this organization how we measure that success how we monitor it, how we report on it, and then how we reward on it. So everybody has KPIs, key performance indicators, uh, MPVs, what minimum primary and visionary performance standards are held to each KPI and we pay you on it. And so while Quantic is one of 6,000 banks in the country, and we do have some unique differentiators like the fact that we're a CDFI focused on lending to underbanked and like that we're a pure digital bank branchless, virtually a branchless bank operating solely online. Um, those are differentiators, but it's the people that really help us to uh, achieve our mission and, uh, and accomplish our goals.
1: Yeah, I'm a believer in that. It's all about the people. It's not about you or I. It's about the people and how well they execute what we put in place. So before I before I miss an opportunity here, Steve, we need to take a short break uh, to pay some bills with a word from our sponsor. We'll be back momentarily.
0: Want to get your marketing and advertising out to the widest audience with maximum effect? Check out Lorraine Gregory Communications, an award-winning agency telling personal and brand stories for more than 30 years. Tell your company's story with digital and traditional advertising and marketing. Visit LorraineGregory.com today.
1: And we're back. Steve. Hey. Tell me, we've been discussing your experience in creating and building companies. You just touched on the culture, the diversity and inclusion that are very important today. Maybe you can go a little bit deeper in what do you mean when you talk about the culture of the companies you create.
2: Okay, so as I was mentioning, it, it, it's about the right people. And um, a lot of companies do a bad job at hiring the right people. And they look at the resumes, the skills on the resumes and the experience seems to match up to the job function the company's looking to hire for. And then they might have that candidate interview with three different people within the organization. And largely those three people all ask the same questions as the other. And they don't really oftentimes gain a deep enough insight into the personality and the cultural fit of the person they're recruiting. So we do some things that are interesting and kind of goofy. When we're recruit when we're recruiting in the past, we, we've used things like asking the candidate to to build, film a TikTok video uh, of anything, just because we want for certain jobs where it requires an adaptive mindset. You know, can we can a person a candidate get out of their comfort zone, do something completely unusual, and and deliver that back to us without kind of losing it? And so we do a number of different things, personality testing, Myers-Briggs, but there's all kinds of tools. And we're always trying to come up with, with ways to figure out, uh, is this the right person? And and we've hired people that had spectacular resumes and really high skills or strong skills. But when they came on board, um, frankly, they were you know an asshole. And we're like, okay, we don't have room for that here. And nobody likes this person. And they don't, They don't get along with the other managers or staff, and we've let people go that we that were so strong from on paper, but didn't fit culturally. And so it's really it's it's kind of the most important thing. And then in terms of building that culture, we've done a lot of surveys of our employees to find out what's most important to them, and um, you know especially now in COVID where everybody's still working remotely and working from home. You know, people want to feel like they're they're part of something, like they're included, like they're in the know. They understand what's happening, what the corporate's over corporations' over, overarching goals are, what their lesser goals are, um, core values. We talk about these things all the time. You know, we have, for instance, four core values, um, and and they're not things like integrity, honesty, work. You know, those are. Those are table stakes, like without those, you know, you don't, you don't belong working here or anywhere. But beyond that, we talk about, yeah, we talk about things like knowing the goal, Um, progress, not perfection, try it on. And then our last is say cheese you know, and, 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 you know, knowing the goal of progress, not perfection, for instance, I mean, we're a bank and we're also a, a fintech, a digital bank. And the things we're trying to do as a small bank competing against the behemoth private equity backed fintechs and big banks, you know, we're trying to do some really hard things and we don't succeed at all of them. And, you know, my team knows that it's about making progress, not perfection. And it's about knowing what the goal is and making progress towards that goal every day. But we may never achieve perfection, but that's okay. We're gonna make mistakes and that's okay too. And like yesterday, we had a, a very serious management meeting about um, a multimillion dollar tech project that we're deeply entrenched in that you know, all this time down the road, we're saying, is this the right thing for us to be focused on right now? And we're not afraid to ask the hard questions because within the culture, it's okay for us to fail. It's okay for us to, to, um, to make mistakes and learn from them and switch gears. And, uh, and I think we're, it's one of the things we do a really good job at is communicating with our staff and making sure they understand our core values that they live them every day.
1: Yeah, I mean, it, it, without that, you're just like a herd going scattering on stampede. You're not really running with the herd, you know, you need the border collie to keep everybody going in the same way. So okay, like all the CEOs that I've interviewed, they're basically, in some regard, they give back to the community, right? They, it's part of their profile, it's part of their life, it's part of their being, right? You're a little different in that you're a for-profit company, but you've also formed a nonprofit, founded and support and run a nonprofit called Urban Angels and I love the focus on this goal. Tell us about, A, why you did that, what the organization is all about, and what does that mean to you on a day-to-day?
2: Urban Angels is, is actually the brainchild of my partner, Scott Lutwack, out in San Diego. Uh, he's my partner in FIT, the health club business. And you know we're a, we're a very prominent brand in the community with our six locations, um, with you know, 10 plus thousand members, and, um, there's a there's a large homeless population in San Diego that you you just can't miss, and so um, we partnered up with uh, one of the big homeless shelters initially, and um, convinced them to let us use their commercial kitchen. Uh, in order, it started as for our own benefit to be able to prepare prepare food that we were selling in the gyms, and ultimately what we realized was that um, the city could use help in in also feeding homeless people so we made a deal with the city and initially it started as a trade where if you let us use your kitchen um, we'll also provide meals for the homeless well that ended up becoming a very lopsided transaction because once you start doing good and seeing the impact um, we just grew it and grew it and grew it and, and we're serving upwards of a hundred thousand meals a year now uh, to the homeless people of san diego and what's also really cool about it is People from the community come in, it's college students, it's biker groups, it's, um, you know, you you name it. Uh, people from all walks of life will come in to volunteer their time. You know, we're paying for the food, but people will come in and volunteer their time to help prepare it, to help serve it, to help clean it up. And, you know, ultimately I've always said that charity is selfish in some ways. You, you do it because it makes you feel good. And it really does. And so it's, you know, if, if people and companies aren't being charitable, they're missing, they're missing out. And because it's really an opportunity to do great things for people that are, are in need, but, but you get back so much from doing so. Yeah, I've been involved with the nonprofit
1: community for 30 years and I'm a member of the Board of Directors Association of Fundraising Professionals. And I just love them because everybody's in heart and soul with what their constituents need. And I, as a, as a, a mentor, if you will, help them do that. And it's just, it gives you just so much more than just coming in and looking at a balance sheet every day. You know, I, I praise you, I thank you for what you've done. But you didn't stop there.
2: <laughs>
1: so tell us about the Arthur Project.
2: So the Arthur Project was founded by a woman named Liz Murray, who is just a remarkable human being. She, um, there was actually a, a, a movie made about her her life. It was called From Homeless to Harvard. and. Um, she, uh, she grew up homeless, you know, she had her parents had drug issues and ultimately had died. And, um, and she, she had a mentor named Arthur, who she tells this story much more artfully than I will. But she had a mentor who, who always kind of looked out for her and made sure that she understood her value as a person that she was at least, despite being homeless, was civically engaged, that she understood that she needed to finish school, kind of took, you know, kept an eye out for her. And she ended up um, going to Harvard and graduating from Harvard, and, uh, and she became friendly with a, 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 another a friend of mine who, uh, from YPO, Young Presidents Organization, and, and they, they decided that um, this whole concept of mentorship uh, could be the linchpin in making a profound difference on at-risk youth, particularly like sixth, seventh graders, where they're, you know, these teens are at this crossroads in their life, and, it, you know, there's all kinds of mentoring, there's big brothers, big sisters, there's there's mentoring light, you know, as I kind of like to think of it, but the, what, what Liz and Jeff Mutie, who now run the Arthur Project, I'm on the board, what, but what they came up with was a concept of intensive mentoring where we use um, full-time mentors who are masters of social work students at Columbia and NYU and Hunter College and, and some other schools. And these people spend Um, tens of hours per week with these young kids, making sure that these kids have, um, you know, understand the value of being engaged civically, of sports, of school, of attendance, of church, or whatever they're, if they're religiously oriented, making sure that these kids kind of have a purpose and understand their value as human beings and know that, you know, they can achieve things beyond what the mold is in the community that they live in. And, um, and this intensive mentoring is proving to work. Now we have the data to back it up because kids are having a better attendance record, better grades, higher matriculation rates. Uh, and just, again, you know, this is the kind of thing where you can make a difference by just trying. There's millions of kids at risk and we're serving hundreds of them, but we hope to grow it to thousands and tens of thousands uh, over the years.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's just amazing that people who run businesses are so generous with their time, with their money, with their treasure, because you want to have an impact. You've done well and you want to return something to the community. It's just wonderful. I just love it. I love to hear stories like that. But in order for you to be able to do all of that, you need to run your companies. So tell me a little bit about what your style is in management, in terms of management. Are you deep into the details and a more broad thinker? Where do you lie?
2: So I, I've actually grown a fair amount over the last handful of years in my style. I, I historically, you know, I used to say that my style was just show up, push the boulder uphill as hard as you can every day, uh, just work hard, solve problems and, uh, and everything will take care of itself. And, and that worked for me for a while. But with um, with Quantic, you know, I found that I needed a, a new set of skills in order to succeed here because You know, in in banking and finance, which is evolving so rapidly, you've got blockchain and cryptocurrency and all these fintech companies that are chipping away at the products and services that banks have historically uh, had a monopoly on. And so, what I found is, um, you know, I can't do this the old fashioned way. I'm not the smartest guy in the room anymore. And in order for me to succeed, I have to have a management team that is um, extremely intelligent, very skilled, culturally a match, and people that can own their respective areas of the organization, uh, soup to nuts, and for me to be a leader, but not someone who does it all himself, because I can't. And so I've spent the last two years learning how to be a better manager of managers, learning how to lead my managers and And part of that is, you know, the cadence of meetings that we've built and how those meetings run. The agenda is not mine anymore. The agenda comes from the management team. Uh, everybody puts on the, you know, we start with positive focus every day, you know, it's, so it's personal too. everybody gets to understand what makes the other tick. Uh, and we spend a fair amount of time on things like that, but, um, hiring the most talented and skilled senior and executive managers you can find and then giving them the autonomy to do their jobs without being interfered with by me uh, is probably the biggest evolution of talent that I've experienced personally. And I think that's what's enabling me to take this little community bank, which is one of 6,000 and become what we think is one of the most highly visible and, uh, and successful small, not, soon not to be so small banks in the country.
1: So, I kind of equate it to being the ringmaster of this multi multi ring circus, right? You're touching all the different bases, and you're the guy in the middle, and everybody's looking at you. But you need to lay off the the stuff that, the real stuff that gets it done. Uh, You know, we were a little small company out here. We have about 24 employees. But that's my job. My job is teacher, professor, mentor, and ringmaster. And that's what gets me in here every single day because it's different every day. Face with different things everything It just gives you more to grow on. All right, so I'm pretty much monopolizing your whole day here, so I'm going to get us close to closing. The audience that we have is a mix of CEOs and others on their way to the C-suite. And I ask all my guests to give us that one piece of advice that you would pass along to your fellow CEOs or those on the way to the
2: C-suite. The thing that's worked most well for me over the last handful of years is um, whatever you think you can afford to pay for talent in critical positions, increase it by 50% and hire the absolute best people you can hire, even if you think it's outside of the range which company your size or in your position should be able to afford because you will earn it back many fold by hiring the best, most skilled people you can find. Don't be afraid to overreach a little bit in compensation and get the best people.
1: That's really excellent advice. Excellent, excellent advice. So I'm going to give you the floor to tell people how to get a hold of you, how to interact with the bank or any of your other businesses. It's all yours. Make sure we know how to get
2: home. All right. Well, thanks. Uh, I'm happy to take any calls or communication. You can reach me at um, my email address, which is my last name, Schnall, A -A L L at QuanticBank.com, Q-U-O-N-T-I-C, bank.com. And uh, my cell phone number is 917-304-1406. Oh,
1: boy. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. You did it. I there, hope it has is. there it is out there for the public. So, thank you so much. Really, really, we really, really, really uh, appreciate you coming on to show you a very interesting story. I'd love to get part two in here someday. Uh, but what we're going to do is we're going to say thank you to the guests, thank you to the audience. The recording of the interviews are available in video on YouTube at Greg's Corner Office or on my, my office website, Greg's Corner Office website. Uh, the podcast is available on all of the popular streaming platforms. And if you like the show, please like, share, and, and distribute it to all your people. We really need to help to build the audience. And we thank you so much. So, Steve, once again, thank you very much for being part of the show. We appreciate it. Hope to see you again.
2: And stay well. My pleasure. You too. Take care. Guys.
0: That's a wrap on another Ask a CEO interview. We hope you enjoyed the talk. We'd love to hear from you. Visit gregscorneroffice.com, click the Ask a CEO tab, search your favorite listening app, or view on YouTube. Click the subscribe button. And don't forget to like and follow us on Facebook. Until next time, goodbye from Ask a CEO.